1: They're so good, they make us want to sing, like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grill, with 100% made flame anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the Dollar Grill Dog deal and get a classic grill dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last.
0: Welcome to a special edition of the Dunked On NBA podcast. I hope you'll excuse the audio quality. We're actually coming from Oracle Arena live, Danny and I, after the Warriors defeated the Pelicans 97-87. What are your thoughts on this game, Danny? Let's get started.
1: The biggest takeaway for me is just how little New Orleans has outside of their core players. I thought that Tyreek, Anthony Davis, of course eric gordon and those guys played very well and i was thinking about it because omar sheik didn't play particularly well ryan anderson didn't play particularly well but they don't really have other moves to make we saw norris cole play a lot tonight dante cunningham played more which i thought was useful but i think that's just a structural flaw with this team particularly with how hurt they are
0: yeah it seems like they kind of have two options i mean one is the lineup they ultimately settled on to close the game, and I shouldn't say that actually, two options this is a little overly simplistic, but the lineup they closed the game with was their three starters of Gordon, Evans, and Davis, and then they had Norris Cole and Dante Cunningham. Dante Cunningham was playing the four, and that lineup basically couldn't score the last five minutes of the game. It was 85-84, and then the Warriors outscored them. 12-2 to two the rest of the game, and that was with about five minutes left. So th- those guys couldn't score at all. They were driving to the basket, but turning it over, Anthony Davis had a bunch of isolations on Draymond Green, and just wasn't able to get there. He, t- he looked a little tired, which is something we'll touch on later. Um, but, yeah, so that lineup, although they, they managed to stop the Warriors pretty well, another relatively fast-paced game, as it usually is with the Warriors, and they held the Warriors... Uh, Know, well under their season average in points per possession is, uh, as asked Norris Cole later in the game. But uh, they just couldn't score down the stretch, and that's why they lost this one.
1: Do you feel that one possible solution to the problems that availed them is to go even smaller and play Quincy Pondexter at the 4 and Anthony Davis at the 5?
0: Are you getting that impression from my, like, five tweets on the matter? I am. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I think Cunningham... What is he really providing that Pondexter could... Now, he's a little bit taller. Maybe you can say that he can rebound a little bit better, although he's not, never been a great rebounder. But the Warriors don't have some post-up threat that you need to guard at the four. They had AD guarding Andrew Bogut, and he was very effective on Bogut. And so why not put in Pondexter, have him guard Draymond Green? Green's not going to post up. That's one thing that he doesn't really have in his skill set. And then Pondexter can actually space out and make a three on the other end or do something off the drilling. And Cunningham played 18 minutes, only took one shot. He was one for one from the field. He just made an elbow jumper, really almost never even touched the ball, and wasn't a threat. And so what leaving him on the floor allowed the Warriors to do was they didn't have to make any hard choices because Bogut could just guard Cunningham. They were able to keep Draymond one-on-one, Against Anthony Davis, and he did a great job in the fourth quarter. So, if you put Pondexter on there, then you either force the Warriors to go with Draymond Green at center, which they didn't do at all in this game. I think they didn't like that, the way that unit played, because it gave up a bunch of points in the fourth quarter. So, you know, you'd force them to either do that, or you force Bogut to then guard Davis, and then you can get into your pick and roll game much more if you're the Pelicans. One thing that was huge in this game is that they just couldn't get anything done in the pick-and-roll because the Warriors were just switching it, and that was usually a 1-4 pick-and-roll with Davis when he was playing the four. And he had green on him, and they would just switch it, and then they had to try and post up Davis at the free-throw line and see if he could score on Thompson, and there would always be plenty of help from Bogut, who would be guarding Cunningham. So if you put Pondexer in, then you got you make things much harder because then it's a 1-5 pick-and-roll if Bogut's guarding Davis are probably not going to want to switch that and you can actually really get into your pick and roll game get some lobs to AD get some pick and pops which the Warriors completely took away in this game.
1: And as you mentioned that you get the offensive benefits of Quincy Pondexter and his greater capability but you also don't have to really suffer that much guarding Draymond Green because Draymond Green is a kind of a 3-4 in that sense that he's not going to exploit you in the post he's not going to, I don't think he's going to do anything there that will really punish you defensively, so you kind of get in some ways a reverse trade-off of some of the other tough decisions they had to make with, let's say, Ryan Anderson
0: Yeah, and We could talk also about Anthony Davis. Did you agree with with my assessment that he was tired down the stretch?
1: Absolutely. You and I tweeted almost exactly the same time without saying a word to each other that he looked tired when Steve Kerr called a timeout. I believe there were about three minutes to go, and they had switched. Davis had switched on to Curry, and he looked tired. And that's justifiable. He played 45 minutes in this game. They need him to play every minute, and he did benefit from and will continue to benefit from the elongated timing of an NBA playoff game. But that's really hard. It's hard even with young
0: legs. Well, so for me, I mean, and, you know, we're not just saying, oh, he played a bunch of minutes, so he's tired. You know, that's right. not how we do things here. We say, all right, he's played a bunch of minutes. Let's watch him. Let's see whether he's tired. And you could see that he was. He was he was trying to post up against green. He wasn't able to fight for position. He's starting with his, his post-ups out by the three-point line. He didn't have the strength to really back down. He had to throw up some ugly floaters, wasn't able to really power up. Uh, on his finishes in the fourth quarter he had to switch out on guys he he looked exhausted as, as you mentioned he was guarding Bogut which should have enabled him to give more help at the rim and in that fourth quarter finally the Warriors were able to get to the rim and he wasn't able to contest he was would be glued to Bogut really for no reason and one thing that people don't talk about is being tired isn't only a physical thing it's a mental thing as well and when you're tired you forget what you have to do. You're thinking about how tired you are. You just your brain just doesn't work as well. And so, you know, he's like, "All right, here's my man. I'm going to stick with him. It's Bogut." Instead of thinking, "This is Andrew Bogut. I don't have to guard him. I can get out, get down there and help out." So, it, yeah, you know, it manifests itself in, in a lot of ways. The question is, Danny what choice does money have because they got killed in the first half when he went out.
1: Yeah, he get they got killed in the first half, but if your goal is to that you know it's going to be close at the end of the game, then I think you have to make sure that he is playing at close to his maximum because what happened in the early part of the game was we saw how taxing but how beneficial his minutes were. He did an amazing job affecting Golden State's offense even when he wasn't making the physical play. We saw it with Bogut. It seemed like Bogut was afraid to make certain plays, yeah, he, was he was hesitating. Awesome in
0: that first half.
1: Yeah, and so you want as many of those first half impact minutes as you can. So for me, if you trade off three of those minutes to have a backup, yes, that's unfortunate. But you're not going to be blowing this team out by enough to do that. And so you just have to play it that way. In my opinion, you can disagree, but I think that's the structure that Oklahoma, that New Orleans needs to win.
0: You know, I, I still think, and maybe there are smart teams out there that are doing this, but. You know, I'm not really sure. what You think, all right, you're resting for three and a half minutes for every TV timeout. Does it really make that big of a difference if you're out for another two minutes of game time or, or four minutes of game time in the second half You know, when you're getting all these rests anyway? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just psychological, knowing that you haven't had a break. I think a lot of coaches could potentially a little better job of rotating guys out a little more often instead of this guy's going to be out for one stretch we just say all right you know what we're going to take this guy out for two possessions we know we have a tv timeout coming up and let's just slow it down for these two possessions not get killed and then know that we're going to bring them right back in and just tell the guys all right you got to play hard for two possessions and you know deal with them being out uh that might be a better way of subbing guys in then to say, all right, we're going to take you out for a four-minute stretch. We're going to take you out for a six-minute stretch. But, you know, that's probably getting a little too meta for the purposes of this podcast.
1: The other one that I've thought about is when in the third quarter, if you have enough timeouts, just calling one timeout when there's about a minute left to play or maybe even 30 seconds and just using the extra time to get them a five- to six-minute rest and really not sacrifice as much, especially if you have the ball at that point, then you can slow it down. You get two possessions, they get one and you're minimizing the damage in that context.
0: Yeah, so again, this is this is kind of smaller things. You know, It probably didn't make a difference in what ended up being a 10-point game necessarily. Uh, I mean, something very encouraging for the Pelicans was their defense in this game. Yep. That was uh, certainly something that they are able to do, but uh, discouraging was the fact that Ryan Anderson just, again, could not get going. Only play, played 9 minutes and 22 seconds, 1 out of 5, Uh you know, So four points, and then Omer Ashek struggled with foul trouble, struggled to catch the ball. Those are their second and third best big men, and their, their ineffectiveness is a big reason why Anthony Davis has to play 45 minutes in this series.
1: Absolutely. It's a really tough decision for them, and their bench players kind of all over the floor, except for Norris Cole, had had those challenges. So Monty Williams is in a tough spot. Hopefully for him and for this series, Drew Holiday can play at least 15 minutes. I think that would be really nice. It's a really tough injury, a stress fracture in your in your leg. It's hard to get back. It's hard to play your best. But this series has been exciting. It's been entertaining. But in order for it to really become more than that, I feel like Drew Holiday needs to be part of it.
0: So really, the Warriors got back into this game because they were down, I think, what was it, uh, down 9? were they down after the first quarter? They were down 9
1: after the first yeah, quarter. To, or no, 11, well, 11. 2017.
0: Yeah. They really stymied the Warriors defensively. And then the Warriors went to a little more offensive unit start the second quarter than they had in game one, and that was coincided with when Davis was out, and Maurice Spates got a couple of jumpers, Uh, Leandro Barbosa really got going during uh, the late first quarter, early second quarter, and the Warriors were able to get right back, and they ended up scoring 38 points in that second quarter, the starters came in and continued it, uh, and so they ended up going up by three after the first half, and from there, they, I wouldn't want to say they are totally in control by any means, but, you know, they were back in the game. They weren't down anymore, and, and uh, what would you think of the Oracle crowd tonight? You, you've been a veteran of, of Oracle Arena for a while now. Uh, what would you think after those money Williams comments about how they were maybe too loud?
1: They definitely started out hyped, and the, what the Pelicans did so well was, in, they didn't take them out of the game, but they definitely took that Super energy away until the very Very end when it looked like the victory was in sight They never lost hope There was never really a situation where you could hear A pin drop, but it wasn't that Fervent atmosphere, I would say Even until kind of late in the second half They were thrilled with the Barbosa run And that was very important also for getting the crowd Into it, a series of Warriors talked about afterwards Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry The importance of that to really get the crowd Into it, but I didn't think they were at that Uh, Peak Oracle level really at all, but really in that, especially other than that early first quarter, when Eric Gordon went off in particular, and Anthony Davis played great. So it was a very good crowd, it was a great crowd almost anywhere else, but I've seen Oracle louder and, in a way, more supportive. So, it's a start, but it's not, they'll get better for me.
0: Well, uh, you know, I think Anthony Davis, he, he was pretty impressed with how the crowd was, you know, they, they talked about how his crowd at, at home, or someone asked him how his crowd at home was going was to be, and, and he said, yeah, you know, our our crowd might be just as loud, but, you know, to tell you the truth, it basically would be hard to imagine uh, anyone being as good as this is essentially what he said. Um, and also, get, getting back to the minutes thing, I asked uh, Monty, and you asked Anthony Davis about those minutes, Monty's response basically was, look, it's the playoffs, I'll play them all 48 if I need to, he doesn't want to come out, he's, he's ready to go, um, so... You know, I mean, and he didn't take umbrage at my question. And, I, and frankly, you know, I, as I said, I'm not sure he has much of a choice given how they got killed when, it, when they took him out. So uh, with that said, I mean, I think it's, he's just going to have to hopefully play better and maybe he can be buoyed uh, by his own home crowd down the end in games three and four.
1: Yeah, I, I Davis is so important for their team and I, I've gained an even greater appreciation for his value if you want to talk about the concept of most valuable player for this team in this series obviously it's been augmented by the devastation that injuries have caused even Tyreek Evans, he played 40 minutes tonight despite having a deep bone bruise he was a game time decision, played 40 minutes that's awfully impressive to me in that sense but at the same time, they again, they had no options so they Davis did a great job there he will be necessary for them to even to make any game a game much less make this a series do you want to move on to the Chicago's no
0: well let's let's finish up with this a little more especially since we're here a a few more observations I mean you mentioned Tyreek he really gutted it out I I was impressed with how tough he was he got to the free throw line for 12 attempts he was just basically trying to pull in there you'll see that a lot of times with guys who are hurt you know they don't have the explosion so they just will try to go through guys and he had some turnovers, He's was only 4'13", but he did shoot those 12 free throw attempts and, and had 10 rebounds, 7 assists, so you know, I don't know where they would have been without him because they didn't really have anyone else who could drill the ball and, and run, pick, and roll, so he, he deserves a lot of credit for how well he played. Pondexter, although I was advocating for him, he struggled after that 20-point game. In the first game, only 1 out of 8, which was pretty rough, but I still think he should have been out there at the end because his shooting... Presents a threat. I mean, it's not like he's some different guy because he shot one out of eight in this game, and you know, he's still the same guy who had 20 points in game one. He's not that guy, the 20 point guy, he's not the one out of eight guy either. So, play him down the stretch, I think. Um, and then we haven't talked really about Klay Thompson at all. He, he had 26 points and he did it on 17 shooting possessions, uh, and, and he was great. I mean, it was a it was kind of a quiet, uh, quiet 26 points, but in the fourth quarter especially he got loose for some jumpers and he was hitting and he should be able to have an advantage in this series because if New Orleans is going to put Pondexer on Curry or they're going to roll with Nor- Norris Cole and Curry who actually did a real nice job, then that leaves them with Evans and Gordon and neither of those guys is much renowned for their dogged off-ball defense. Clay should be able to get loose and he was able to take advantage tonight.
1: Yeah, Clay is always a hard guy to get a finger on because he he always plays good defense and he tries hard and he does that. But then his offense, despite, you know, having the skills that he always has, it can come and go and some of that is just the circumstances that present itself and some of that is I feel like he could be more assertive at certain stretches. This is such a an amazing offensive team that it's not like it has really hit their efficiency, but he he also is a player who defenses have to respect and I feel like sometimes he can get lost in the shuffle. And defenses don't necessarily forget about him, but I feel that he can be a more prevalent part even when he's not scoring the points and putting down the board, just distributing and just being, the defense being like, oh, yeah, this is another remarkable score on this team.
0: Another guy that we have to mention, of course, is Draymond Green. Yep. We, we mentioned his individual defense on Davis. He was plus 24 in this game in 42 minutes. They only won by 10. That means that they're outscored by 14 in the six minutes that he sat, which is pretty remarkable, especially because he didn't line up completely with uh, with Davis very well. Um, you know, and, and actually Davis was able to get loose a lot during like the little bit of time that he was out. Um, but I, again, Green just he, he's all over the place. He allows them to switch everything, just the little communication things. Like for example, the, uh, one thing the Warriors will do on a lot of pick and rolls, and the Pelicans aren't disguising him real well is no matter whether the four or the five man goes to set the screen they'll have Green just wait up there for him at the free throw line and then switch on to whoever the the ball handler is and that takes away anything that you can really do out of that play so uh, that's just another little Warriors trick and they're replete with those and their communication is excellent especially when it's raucous in here you can't really talk they're able to just do it with hand signals point to the guy switch and they get it done and one stat that talks that points out how
1: well Draymond played on Anthony Davis night. Uh, ESPN Stats Info and Tom Haberstroh tweeted out that Anthony Davis was five of nine against every Warrior that was not Draymond Green and three of twelve against him. So Davis had a great night. He played well. He got he some of the shots against Draymond were forced. He did a good job. But Draymond was just incredible. And he was forcing steals and a lot of chaos on that. And he's such an important player for this team. And I like that we talked about Clay and Draymond together because something talking with Warriors media is I like to think about, ask them who they think are the most important Warriors and more often than not Draymond goes higher on that list this season than Klay Thompson. And that is no slight to Klay. That's just how pivotal Draymond is to the overall success of this Golden State team.
0: Yeah, and you know, we can get into our uh, one of our questions here for uh, using the hashtag DunkDon D-U-N-C-D-O-N and it was, let's see, where was he? Ah, uh, no, I can't find it. Ah, yes. Who can the Warriors throw at Davis to give Dre a break? That's from Mark Lagusa. MCL GSW is the Twitter handle. I don't know, do they have anyone?
1: Not really. I mean, this. I think you could try Spates just for a few minutes to see if it fails, to see yeah, how many char- how many so. charges he tries to draw. Yeah. He did that once tonight. I believe that was on Davis and that was one of his fouls. and Yeah, but, that was a horrible call, by Yeah, it was a bad call. But so that's the reason that Draymond is going to play heavy minutes in this series. And actually, assuming they face Memphis in the next round, moving they go through, I actually think Draymond can get more rest in that series because while Zach Randolph is a great player, he is more of a traditional force. So you can get more versatility with that. Because you can't play Harrison Barnes. You can't go small on Anthony Davis. And you can't really go big on him either. So... The answer might be no one. Maybe Bogut for stretches, he's a great defensive player, but other than that, not a whole
0: lot. Yeah, I mean, if they, if Draymond is out there, put him on Davis. If Davis is going to play 45 minutes, you know, Draymond will play 42. And Bogut can guard Davis, but Davis can blow by him. Davis can shoot the jumper and pull Bogut away from the basket. You're really much better off being able to hide Bogut on somebody else and – have Draymond on Davis. He's going to fight him. He's strong. He's got a low base. That's one of the things that Davis doesn't do that well. He doesn't have a ton of strength to get the ball and get great post position. and So, I really think that the Pelicans need to try and do a better job of getting Davis the ball on the move. But, you know, they're not a team that has a ton of movement in their offensive sets. They don't have a flow. They don't have a lot of counters. They're sort of running just specific sets, and the Warriors have that scouted out. They're switching stuff, and then it's devolving into one-on-one, and that's what the Warriors want. You're going to score some points, but it's hard to be efficient over the course of an entire game when you're just playing one-on-one every possession and not getting anything easy.
1: One other question we got that relates to this game that I thought was, was worth following up on while we're in this area. Uh, Matthew Strahan, which is his Twitter handle is Strahan 3 asked if the Pelicans should just let Omer Asik walk in the off season. This is a really tough series for him. I'll, I'll preface it with that. But they are in a difficult spot with him just because of their flexibility.
0: You know, I still think that Asik and Davis could be an unbelievable defensive frontcourt. Asik has been fantastic protecting the rim in previous tops. Although, not only has he, I think he's had trouble getting there to contest as many shots this year. But also, he's not quite as effective actually protecting the basket. I mean, can you remember that many plays when he was actually there and doing his jump straight up thing, I, you know, he wasn't protecting the basket that much, I mean, there, the one play I remember was that green fast break where he was able to hit a fantastic layup over him, but other than that, I don't remember Ostrich having that much effect at the basket in his 23 minutes uh, do you remember it, much of it? No,
1: for me, the timing for him was he was able to get there for the defensive rebound, but he was not there to make the stop that led to the defensive rebound, so that happens but I, I haven't seen him be that impactful on that end, and the Pelicans this year have struggled because their perimeter players let a lot of penetration through, so it's a harder circumstance. But Oshik has so much potential. The other downside with him is that his offense is so limited that against an intelligent team with versatile players, he will be ex- he will allow for the other team to play off him in a way that the Warriors have done really well in this series so far, and a lot of other teams could take advantage of too with preparation and coaching.
0: Yeah, someone like Bogut who's so intelligent is really can do a great job rendering him like a complete offensive non-entity and it's one of those things uh, where you know, he's uh, he's one of those guys who in the playoff crucible, you might not be able to play as much because he has some very, very discernible weaknesses. So the biggest thing about Ashik, though is, all right, you traded a first round pick for him the expectation is you're going to re-sign him. You still do have some defensive potential. Maybe with a coaching change, you might be able to get a little bit more out of him and Davis defensively. But, all right, let's say you don't re-sign him. You probably have about $10 million in space. Depending on what happens with Eric Gordon, the way he's shot the ball, it's halfway possible he could opt out. But assuming he doesn't, you have about $10 million in space. Still need a center. Uh, Ryan Anderson is looking like he might kind of be on the downside after all of his injury problems now. So, you know, he I don't think he's a starting level guy anymore defensively. Who are you gonna replace him with? You know, you may not have much of a choice but to re-sign him and I think, you know, it's certainly not gonna make their management look great to have traded a first round pick for this guy and then let him go for nothing after one year when you got the eighth seed. So, you know, I think they probably do end up re signing him, especially if there's so many centers on the market you may be able to get him for an okay price. But yeah, it's a tough call because he hasn't been effective in the series, and he hasn't been as effective as you would have hoped this entire season.
1: And on top of the cap limitation, they also have a very small amount of true assets in that sense. They don't have a first-round pick that they can use to draft a replacement. It's not like they can pop Willie Cauley-Stein in there. And they don't have really a guy that they can trade. They don't have that kind of, let's say, like an Eric Bledsoe equivalent where they can move somebody for an established player that some other team has, and they'd rather take the potential. So, they have a tough situation it in some ways parallels the Warriors with Bogut a few years ago where the player had leverage but at the same time New Orleans doesn't have the ability to overpay him be- just because they want to happen.
0: Yeah so if you hear the popping in the background that's the uh, cleanup crew popping all the thunder sticks that they're using to try and distract uh the Pelican shooters but we'll soldier on uh you know you we don't, don't, don't want you don't
1: want me to go on a tirade about
0: thundersticks, do you? <laughs> no, no, I, I really don't think we want that at all. All right, let's get to the Chicago game. Um, this is one that I saw the second half of. We were driving to the arena, and but you know we we saw the box score. Jimmy Butler, unbelievable in this game. Uh, you know the Bulls are are would be fools not to give him a max contract. One thing we haven't talked about in here, it's a brief little CBA thing. Is they can give him what's called a maximum qualifying offer. No one's done that yet but it's basically a five-year maximum contract extension, and the reason you, or, or I shouldn't say extension, new, new maximum contract, so five-year for the maximum, 7.5% annual raises, and the reason you would do that instead of the regular qualifying offer is, then if he wants to take an offer somewhere else, it has to be a minimum of three years rather than two. So if you give him the maximum qualifying offer, he might say, well, I don't wanna sign for five years, the cap's going up, I don't wanna be locked in, I wanna sign a shorter deal with somebody else, Well, now that has to be at least three years instead of two like with Chandler Parsons when they just had the regular qualifying offer for him. The Bulls aren't gonna have any cap room either way whether Butler's there, so that maximum qualifying offer makes sense for them. Um, But he was unbelievable, he had 31 points, he was making tough threes, fadeaway threes, fadeaway jumpers in the post. He showed off his amazing footwork again on one dunk where he just blew past uh, Chris Middleton, who's an excellent defensive player, um, just faked him out of his shoes with a jab step and went in and dunked on the whole team. So you know that shows why he should be the most improved player. He wasn't able to do that kind of stuff last year, and he's added to his skill set immensely this year, both his shooting and his ability to make moves off the dribble and even his passing as well. And of course, he was always able to get to the line.
1: Yeah, he he played great tonight. And to me, the other major development in this game was that we actually saw Nikola Mirotic play the power forward position, which is something that you and I have both talked about both on. The Dunked On podcast and on mine. And it's major for the Bulls because that is the natural position for him. And I think that their best lineups often include him playing power forward. Do you agree with that?
0: No, I absolutely. I mean, if it, if it were up to me and there weren't any kind of political considerations with uh, Pau Gasol's ego, I would start Noah and Miritich. And that was a lineup that was pretty effective. Miritich only played 22 minutes. He was plus 11 despite playing some in the jumbo lineup with uh, Gibson and Noah that was ineffective to start the fourth quarter, but he's played well enough at the four to be plus 11 in those minutes. The unfortunate part was that he looks like he might have injured his knee, and potentially they're saying gotten a concussion as well from that Petrulia elbow. He injured his knee when OJ Mayo ran into him going for a loose ball, and then he got into the scrum with Petrulia right after that, uh, that led to Petrulia's ejection. So he played great. I think the the this best Bulls team. The biggest reason they have hope to beat Cleveland is if he could play at the four and really make their offense dynamic. And hopefully he's not too badly injured. He at least was walking under his own power. They said, but uh, we'll have to wait and see what the prognosis is for him. He's probably gonna have an MRI scheduled. I would imagine.
1: The Bucks definitely kept it closer in this game, but I still worry a lot about their offense. I mean, they're they're a team that has difficulty shooting from a lot of places. Aeroson Ilyasova again when uh, he had three for ten. He had, he struggled a little bit in game one. And Giannis has his strengths, but again he was another one of those poor shooting nights for him. He did have eleven rebounds, which is really nice, especially when he's playing the three. But I feel like this is another one of those they're a good team, great for their development, but they don't really have a great shot of winning the series, which is exactly what we said on Saturday or what we said on Sunday after Saturday's game.
0: You talked about the Bucks offense, and that brings us in to a question from uh, at Francis Adu Jr. I hope I'm figuring out. We don't have any capitalization there to, to help us out. Uh, Frank Puddle is his uh, is the name that he goes by, and his question is: Should we be dogging kid for having a Bucks offense that generates so many mid-range jays, or is it a symptom of personnel? I think my answer to that is. It is in large part a symptom of personnel. Giannis can't shoot threes. Michael Carter-Williams can't shoot threes. Uh, Middleton you know, didn't play as much as he probably should have in Game 1. And in Game 2 he played 38 minutes, so that's a little better there. He was 8 out of 20, 3 of 7 on threes, but nobody else uh, really was able to take that many. Ursan Ilyasova only played 24 minutes, was ineffective. 3 out of 10, 0 of 3 on threes. But outside of Middleton and Ilyasova, you don't have any of their big minute guys who are going to shoot a lot of threes. Dudley is someone who played a little more in the regular season, but he's been struggling with a foot issue, and he was uh, only got 17 minutes in this game, and wasn't particularly effective when he played either uh, offensively. Um, So I think that's a big part of it. Also, as we talked about on last night's podcast, the Bulls defense is designed to provide a ton of mid-range jumpers, and when two of your starters your one and your three can only take mid ranges. they can't take threes well then you're going to be taking a lot of mid-range jumpers um, the other thing that was notable about this game I didn't look up the final numbers but uh, at one point the Bucks were shooting 38% at the rim and they had to take a lot of floaters too so a lot of them they weren't going all the way on in and, and the floaters were keeping them alive for a while but they just could not score at the rim Gasol was was pretty good protecting the basket he was more active than he has been during the regular season, both getting out on pick and rolls and on the defensive blast. He, he was good there. And Noah actually looked probably the closest I've seen to his defensive player of the year self when he was playing at center uh, in the minutes that he did. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is going to be a tough Bulls defense for the Bucks to score on the way they are set up. And they don't quite have the dynamic players who are going to be able to hurt the Bulls defense. They don't have the bigs that are going to be able to take advantage of Gasol, especially... Um, and they don't really have the pick and roll ball handlers who can blow by Gasol in the pick and roll. So, with all that being the case, uh, it's hard to expect that the Bucks would be able to score much the rest of the series.
1: There were also a few circumstances where I didn't see the Bucks pushing the accelerator all the way down in transition offense. There were a couple with honest in particular yeah, that I noticed get that, those that because against the Bulls, especially when you're as limited as they are without Jabari Parker and everything else. You have to maximize every non-set situation that you have. And I don't feel like they did that in this game. I don't feel like they did that in game one either. And the margins are so tight for this Bucks team against a very, very good Bulls team that you have to press I think they should be running on makes more just because if you have the opportunity, you're probably not going to get it. You have to be in that, I kind of call it a bipolar offense, where you try really hard to get that look. And if you don't get it, you have to be ready to pull off and go into a real set. This Bucks team actually has the personnel to do that normally, but especially in this series because they're going to have to. Giannis is a, is a very solid athlete for his position. He His handle is better than most small forwards. So you have to do that. Michael Carter-Williams, same thing, because when you can't get, when mid-range shots are trouble and three-point shots are almost impossible to make and get, then that's how you do it. You have to create something for yourself.
0: Giannis has really struggled. Jimmy Butler has him on lock in this series. He was 2 of 11, 4 of 13 uh, last night, and really was, you saw his lack of strength really manifests itself in a few plays where he got the ball under the basket and wasn't able to convert. You noted those times in transition where he kind of lost his aggressiveness. So, I I mean, you know, he's a 19-year-old kid. Uh, he's, he's, I think he maybe just turned 20 and he's, he's not that strong yet being guarded one-on-one by Jimmy Butler. It's probably too much to ask of him to do a lot offensively in this series, even though the Bucs kind of need him to. So not looking great for the Bucs. I mean, they fought gamely, but you know, I, I, I don't expect the series to go much longer than five, although I originally picked it in six. I think the Bulls have come out and taken care of business on the defensive end a little better than I expected so far.
1: One other Twitter question we got on this series that I thought was very astute and great to ask you is from David Kaplan, DK343434, and it was for thoughts on Tom Thibodeau's 2015 playoff lineup so far and substitution patterns.
0: Yeah, and he mentioned it seems more flexible and matchup-oriented than 2014. That's definitely true. I mean, 2014 it was Carlos Buzer plays the first quarter and the third quarter and doesn't play again. Taj Gibson plays... 18 straight minutes uh, in each half. So uh, after not starting and, you know, DJ Augustin doesn't start. And, and yeah, it was very, very – it was very limited, his options. He's got a lot more options now. He has been more flexible. I was impressed that he went with Miritich more. I think the impetus for that was the fact that they just couldn't score in the first quarter and, and into the second quarter. And so he felt like he had to go with him to get more offense on the floor. So I, I was encouraged by that, but now, you know, with Miritich being injured, we may see some more problems. Also, Tibbs has been helped, frankly, by the fact that Kirk Heinrich has been out. Uh, you know, if he comes back in, we could still see him close some games instead of Dunleavy or Snell, which frankly would be a bit of a disaster for the Bulls offense because Heinrich just can't make a shot. Uh, so with, Tibbs having been deprived of that security blanket. I think it helps him improve his rotations. And he has been more flexible and, and doesn't look like he's necessarily wedded to Gasol and Noah to close the game, although that's what ended up happening. I think he probably would have ended it with Miritich had he not gotten hurt. I was also
1: pumped that we got to see some Taj Gibson and Pau Gasol minutes together. I think that those two are the natural partners in that. And there, I was frustrated, as I know you were in the regular season that we saw comparatively little of that and to see it in this series where in particular it makes a lot of sense just with the lineups that Milwaukee's thrown out there because Taj is just such a versatile defender and he can do a a great job kind of protecting a couple different areas at the same time that I think they they can use that also a lot against Cleveland and Kevin Love I think that the Taj-Gasol combination will be very important for them and if they play the Hawks too I think it would be key then as well
0: well, all right. So why don't we move on and get to a few more of our questions before we sign off here? Um, from a basketball fan is the handle. Is this it? Thirty-two. Could the Pelicans have been more creative about getting the AD the ball in spots where it's easier to score? Yeah, I think they could have, especially because he was so drained and and trying to fight Draymond Green for position. As we mentioned, getting it out by the three-point line made things difficult for for AD. Um, but, you know, not being able to get him the ball and pick and roll because of the switching was definitely an issue. You know, I think setting some screens off the ball for him might help, especially because he's someone who is a really good shooter. They might just switch that as well. And I think the other thing would be trying to get a lineup in where you're forcing him to be guarded by Bogut or forcing him to be guarded by Green when Green is the center. He was able to be effective against him in that situation down the stretch of game one. So I think those would be the options. I mean, you can't institute a great flow offense where you're moving the ball real quickly. Just out of nowhere, the Pelicans have been a little bit more ISO-oriented than a lot of teams are. They've been effective offensively that way. But in the playoffs, when the teams kind of lock in, I think that strategy doesn't work as well as, as moving the ball does. So other than just putting in some different lineups, I'm not sure what there is just from a play-running standpoint that they could be doing that would be better.
1: The only thing that I would add to that is that I do think they could give him, in certain circumstances, just a few more touches, because what he does when the ball gets in his hands is it totally changes what the Warriors are doing. They're so keyed on him that as long as you trust him to make that next pass, even when he's not looking for a shot, I think that you can generate some better looks for other guys. I actually think a lot of Eric Gordon's looks in this game were generated by the attention that AD got. And so, even just a few more of those, even if you're not looking for the bucket at that point, particularly in early action, let's say with 16 to 18 seconds left in the shot clock, just to see if you can get something.
0: Yeah, the, you know, New Orleans definitely didn't have a lot of success pushing the ball in this game. And they didn't play at a particularly fast pace in the regular year either. Uh, all right, so we got another one. Uh, this is from William Guo, who I actually met at Sloan. Nice guy. He actually wrote a very interesting yeah. column on. Nylon calculus about NBA betting a couple weeks ago, which you guys should check out. But his question is, how many bucks who played tonight is Jason Kidd better than? I think three.
1: <laughs> well So,
0: yeah, you want to run down who, who played? I, I I can't see it say I agree with our boy William here, but uh, you know, so Jared Bayless, O.J. Mayo, uh you know, those would probably be the guys you, you might look at. I mean, Kidd might have played better than some of those guys in this game. Mayo's been pretty bad in this series also. Yeah, he uh, has been. So, you know, I don't know. Do you think anybody? Well, I mean, it's been no. two years now for, uh, for Coach Kidd. He still looks pretty trim. He can pass the ball. They don't have a ton of passing on that team either. You
1: know, yeah, maybe uh, he they, they'd, re- be they'd probably respect his jump shot more than Michael Carter Williams' jump shot.
0: Yeah, no, well, or at least his set shot from three potentially. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Maybe we could, we could say one, it, just if you consider the odds that, like, you know, if he had played average, some of those guys played bad. He might have played better than one one buck who played tonight. Those last couple games for
1: the Knicks, I remember him. He had that. He had he a nice couple early games, but he yeah. looked he looked pretty. I, I believe the term the kids are using is washed. He looked pretty. He yeah. looked pretty he, washed. He retired for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. And he's a great. He's done a really good job coaching. I'm very impressed with his job overall.
0: Are you? Yeah. No. I think I think he's done well. I mean, anytime you're the coach of a team that has the top five defense, I think. You know, while you can always point to stuff that you can do better, you got to be doing something right. We kill all the coaches for the teams with bad defenses, so you got to give the coaches on teams with good defenses credit, especially if you consider how young this team is. To get them to defend at this level is very impressive. Um, all right, we got time for one more. Let's see here. As we enjoy the
1: dulcet tones of what sounds like a buzzsaw.
0: <laughs> yeah, it may, may be about time to wrap it up here. Um, All right, this is from Cormac. Handle Cormac Aroni. Solid solid Twitter handle there, actually. I like it. Uh, How big a factor is the Spurs not having home court advantage this year? What do you say?
1: This is the exact question I was going to ask if I got the last one. I think that it's not that important, but it always does matter a little bit. You think about the concept of a Game 7, and something that we've talked about in this Warriors series is the fact that in order to win without home court advantage, you have to basically win all your home games and win at least one on the road. That's tough. It's it's not easy for any team. What I think could be challenging for them is the cumulative effort of having to win three straight road series unless Dallas pulls a rabbit out of their hat against the Rockets. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's a reason only one team, the 95 Rockets, has come out of the sixth seed to even get to the finals. Uh, I mean, the the... The 99 Knicks was another one, but that was kind of a weird year. They're the eighth seed that year. That was a weird year, you know, only only 50 games, off the, coming off the lockout. Uh, it was a five-game first-round series. Definitely, you know, not the sample size you have in in the later years. So, it's tough to win without home court advantage. Some of that is selection bias because, you know, a team that's the sixth seed usually isn't that good. They're the sixth seed for a reason. So it's not like everybody's starting from an equal position. It's not all home court the reason that they're not getting there, but I think it's big. I mean, it's more, it's, to me, I think the matchup with the Clippers in the first round that's a little concerning Agreed. Uh, than it is necessarily the home court. The other thing we should remember, number one, the Spurs have not won a series after losing game one since 2010 when they beat the Mavericks. And they haven't won a series without home court advantage, I don't think... Since they have upset the then New Orleans Hornets in 2008, that Chris Paul team, when they won Game Seven on the road, so it's going to be a tall order for this Spurs team. They're a great team. They're the Spurs. Don't give up on them. It's impossible to kill them, etc 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 But you know, frankly, these last since 2011, they've really been the favorites in in just about every series that they've been in. So. Uh, you know, maybe with the exception of against Miami in 2013. So I, I think it's going to be trouble for them, and especially after they lost Game One in fairly decisive fashion. I'm feeling pretty decent about my Clippers and seven pick in that series.
1: Yeah, I gave you, I gave you some lip for it, and you, it, it definitely seems more credible. And the Clippers played one of their best games, in my opinion, that I've seen them play all season. And so that, and that's a huge step for them to have Game One be so good for them.
0: So we will be back tomorrow night. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, hopefully, without the uh, buzzsaw and the popping thunder sticks. Uh, till next time, guys.